Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Hey, before we start, can I, can I invite you into a prayer? But I'm going to have to invite you to listen to it, okay? So it's not on the screen. Uh, it's, it's from Psalm 43. And um, back earlier in the summer, I invited us to think about a verse that could be a daily verse for us to, to help us connect with God and be open to those questions like, God, who and you? Uh, how are you being present with the Lord? Who is God leading you to uh, be present with in this season? And then what's God doing in your own heart? And so this is the, the verse that I've been praying almost daily. And so um, I just thought it'd be a great prayer for us to just uh, open ourselves up to how God wants to speak to us today. So let's do that. Let's listen to this. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the harp. Oh God, my God. And God, that's our prayer right now as we open up your word and we open up the scriptures, God. We pray that you would send your light and your truth, that you would lead us to you, God, uh, to be present to you and your voice in our lives today, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for kind of doing that with me. I'm super excited to share today. I haven't like shared in this kind of setting for a while because the summer and I was off for a little bit and we had some alternate Sundays and we've had some great voices share over the summer in this series we've been calling like summer stories, uh, stories out of the Old Testament and John Wayne shared a couple of times in July, Kelly as well, last week uh, Nathan shared uh, and so I'm excited to jump into this and part of the, the purpose for this summer series is to give us some exposure to parts of the scriptures we maybe skip over, don't read often, uh, if you're like most most people, like I think the majority of, of Christ followers stick to the Gospels and then Paul's letters. Uh, and then it's like, you know, you can read a couple of verses and say, oh, I, I can like dig into this for a while. But the Old Testament has a different context and different genres. And so it's been great to be exposed to that. And of course, to really listen for God's truth and God's wisdom in the middle of that. And so I, I've appreciated, I, I went back and listened to the podcasts of, uh, of the other messages this summer and was here live with us last week as well, just just leaning into that. So since we're into stories, I'm going to jump right into today's story. You ready for that? It's a story. And not a, not a story like a makeup story. It's a story that we read uh, from Israel's history. And it's about a judge in Israel's history. And Nathan last week spoke and about a judge named Gideon out of the book of Judges. Today we're going to speak about another judge, and her name is Deborah. And we're going to jump right into this story. You can follow along on the screen or get open your Bible to Judges chapter 4. Uh, and that's that's what we're going to be out of today. And, uh, and here's how the story begins. It's right in the context of this book of Judges. And so here we go. Verse, verse 1, chapter 4 says this. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And after Ehud, another judge, died, so the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. I had to say that a hundred times this week. 
Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. At that time, Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. She used, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her for judgment. And even as we just open up this story, and we're going to read parts of it as, as it unfolds in the next uh, few minutes here, as we start to get into this story, we can see the echo of the mess that Israel's in. Judges is a messy book, and Judges tells us the mess that Israel's in. The purpose of this book of Judges in the Old Testament is telling us how bad it's gotten for Israel when they, at the, you know, just for the result of their own decisions and rejecting God's wisdom and kind of doing things in their own ways and just leaving, um, you know, the, the, the heartbeat of God in their life. Now, Israel was initially being shaped into God's people through the leadership of Moses and then Joshua, and eventually we're going to see in the story of the Old Testament, uh, kings come into the picture. But here we have this in-between time, between the leadership of Moses and Joshua and the time of the kings that come into place. And it, all this messiness is happening because they decided to do what was right in their own eyes. The opening chapters of Judges tell us this in chapter 2, verse 10, says that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And when they acted this way, when they turned away from God, when they did their own thing, they entered into this vicious cycle. And this cycle repeats 12 times in the book of, of Judges. The cycle is sin, slavery, surrender, and salvation. That, this happens 12 times in this book, over and over again. And it happens in our story as well until Deborah comes in. She's the third judge in the book of Judges. And if we just look at these verses, it's amazing that even in this story, we get a glimpse of this cycle. So verse 1 says that Israel, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So one judge was there. They had some time of peace and calm and goodness, but then they fall into sin again. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. The next part of the cycle is slavery. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar, and so here we have this moment where because of their sin, because of their actions, because of their behavior, they fall under the oppression of another ruling king, another ruling nation. The next part of the cycle, it's surrender, but I call it sobbing as well because Israel is freaking out and they cry out to the Lord. And they're sobbing, but then they come to a moment of surrender where they're like, Lord, help us. This is horrible. We never wanted it this way. And verse 3 says, Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had a, well, this is King Jabin, had these uh, chariots of iron and oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. They're crying out to help. Lord, we surrender. Then the last part of the cycle. At that time, Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapideth, was judging Israel. And this repeats over and over again. And this is one cycle among 12. And what we understand from Judges, it's, it's known as tragic literature, right? The letters of Paul are, are the ways, you know, that in the New Testament we get taught in very specific ways of the early church. The Gospels have a certain genre of their own. The Psalms, which I read from before, and I think we read earlier at the beginning of our gathering, has a poetic wisdom feel to it. This book of Judges is kind of generally under history in the Old Testament, but we can call it tragic literature, it's called tragic literature. You know why? Because nothing resolves at the end. 
It doesn't end nice. It never, it doesn't end nice. The whole book doesn't end nice. It's not a Hollywood blockbuster with a typical happy ending at the end, right? Uh, I think Adam Sandler's movie company is called Happy Gilmore, and probably all of his movies end with a happy ending because you can't sell movies that don't resolve. And so this is different. This is tragic literature, and some people watch some movies and stories that have this purpose, but rarely do we get to this. And tragic literature demonstrates how bad the decisions or bad wisdom and sinful posture led to this tragedy. Here's a modern example of tragic literature, the Godfather trilogy. The Godfather trilogy doesn't end well. All, the, all their decisions, and here's a picture of, of uh, the Godfather, played by Al Pacino, final scene of the third movie, kind of keeling over in some lot in, in Sicily somewhere in Italy. That, this is tragic literature. The story doesn't end well. There's not a solution. There's not a resolve. Um, I've never watched this series on TV, but the Breaking Bad series, right? This teacher who comes somehow like learns how to make meth, I think. Anyways, like it's a tragic ending. It doesn't, it doesn't end well. It's tragic literature. There's no resolution. And this is what Judges is like. And part of the purpose for tragic literature, and maybe you can ask John Wayne at the end. He loves ethics and he might, you know, fill you in with other portions of like other books you can read like this. But what we learn from tragic, about tragic literature is that we don't want to get to the tragic ending. We don't want to get to the trajectory that leads us to that. And Judges is the kind of story written when Israel stopped being faithful to God. That's what the story is, repeated over and over again. Nathan said this last week. He said that parts of the Old Testament are often about humans to learn from, but not always heroes to emulate. Humans to learn from, not always heroes to emulate. I like to think about it like this. There's parts of the Bible that we read that are not prescriptive. We don't read certain parts of the Bible and say, go and do likewise. I mean, we can read that in the teachings of Jesus and some of the teachings of the New Testament and even of the Old. And, but there's parts of the New Testament of, of the Scripture, sorry, as a whole, and especially in the Old Testament, that are more descriptive. They've told us what happened, not what to do. And that's a little bit of what like Judges is like. And here's this tragic cycle that Israel's in. Sin, slavery, surrender, salvation, and then over and over again. But here in this one cycle enters Deborah. And Deborah is one of these identified judges in the story. Now, while most judges were like anti-heroes, you know, people you might thank, for, thank them for their service after it's done, but they're not the kind of character you would want to follow. Most of the judges in Judges are like that. Deborah is slightly different. She has a really interesting name. Uh, you know, one of the roots in, of, Hebrew, of her Hebrew name, Deborah, is B. And the name of her husband, Lapidoth, can actually mean like fiery torches. And so when you put Deborah and Lapidoth together, it's kind of like she's the wife of, of, um, of fiery torches. So she's a, she's a fiery bee. A Deborah is a fiery bee. She's a fiery character. She has, she has some, you know, that it factor <laughs> to her. Now, one of the things obvious among all the 12 judges is she's not a man. She's a woman. And this definitely makes her stand out from the rest of those in the book. Now, this is not an ancient take on the Barbie movie. Uh, that, that's not what the story of Deborah is. It, it, you know, it might expose deeds of patriarchy where it, that needs to be exposed. But that's not the point of this story particular. 
There's other reasons why Deborah stands out besides her gender. And, you know, now for those of you who wonder if God uses women, if somehow there's some theological idea in your mind of how God does or doesn't use women, I'm not going to talk about that today. I would just invite you, read Deborah's story and wrestle with it for the whole of Scripture and how God uses women throughout history, including in his own people. Now, regardless of, of her gender, she stands out. And it's interesting, John Golden Day says this about her, as someone who combined the role of judge, prophet, leader, and poet, there is no doubt that she is the greatest figure in the book. So who's Deborah? Well, yeah, she's a woman, but she's a mother. She's a wife, but she's also a prophet. One of the, the first prophets mentioned in the Old Testament after Miriam and Moses. She spoke God's word to Israel. She helped Israel discern God's voice. She was also a judge. She wasn't just a judge because she came into this moment. See, Gideon and others, they were called judges, even Samson, after the fact. God used them to come into this one of the cycles, and then they're identified as a judge. But Deborah's judging already. She's already acting like a judge. And this is really important, that she wasn't only a judge in the crisis, she was a judge before the crisis. So she was kind of like Moses in when he would set up court, in a sense, like, you know, differently than we might have today, but set up kind of a station where people would come to him, and he would help them discern their issues, and, and help them decide things, and, and help give them wisdom. And so people came to her to settle their disputes, to discern solutions, to decide with wisdom. And that was part of her role. The word judgment can be translated into decision, and the same word in Hebrew can be seen as leader. So she's not just a mother, wife, and woman. She's a prophet, judge, and leader. And Deborah steps into this crisis, into this moment where Israel, because of their behavior, and God allowing them to come under the ruling of King Jabin, being oppressed for 20 years, she comes into this crisis. This crisis where Israel is being anti-discipled by the kingdoms around them. The, the heartbeat of Moses and Joshua is that they would continue to be shaped into God's people. And that was one of the reasons why they said, when you enter the promised land, make sure that the Canaanites are not the ones that are influencing you. So get them out of that land so then you can be shaped in my ways. One of the root causes of their influence of their temptation was the constant surrounding of the, Can the Canaanites. It was their influence that, they, that, that Joshua was cautious about, saying, beware of this. So they had this continual influence, this continual temptation around them, and it was an anti-discipleship. They were being shaped in the wrong identity. How many of us know what, that, what that's like? How many of us know what it means to be in an environment, in a culture, in a circle that is anti-discipleship? We're being shaped in the wrong identity. And that's one of the major crises Israel is in. Deborah steps into the crisis. And here's how it describes what happens. She, Deborah, verse 6, will continue. It's on the screen. She sent and summoned Barak son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, position yourself at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun, 
And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon, that's a valley, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned, summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 warriors went up behind him, and Deborah went with him. And so this is how Deborah's being used in this crisis. She discerns from God because she says, this is what the Lord is telling you, Barak. Not Barack Obama. I, it's hard not to think about that name, right? Um, this is the Lord sending you, Barack. He's calling you. He's sending you, and you need to bring this army with you. And so she's discerning God's voice and directing Barack in what to do, the way that God would free Israel from King Jabin's oppression. And it actually works. Verse 12 to 16. We'll continue reading. Verse 12 says this, When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called all his chariots, 900, um, 900 chariots of iron, and all the troops who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoim, that long name again, to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, she sees what's going on, she's with him, she says, up, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot while Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hegeom. We should just shorten this to H-A-G. But anyways, uh, all the army of Sisera fell by the sword. No one was left. It works. They're, they're removed. And, but Sisera is still on the run. The commander of the army is still on the run. Everyone's gone, but the commander of the army is still on the run. And this section is very good writing for an ancient text and a little, um, you know, sketchy, but listen to this one. Verse 17. Now Sisera had fled on foot to the tent, to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Canaanite, for there was peace between King Jabin of Hazer and the clan of Heber the Canaanite. So these two kind of kingdoms working together. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me, have no fear. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Then, she said, then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. She opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the entrance of the tent, and if anybody comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. I'm thinking he probably said please in the middle of that. <laughs> but Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the tent in his temple. I, I don't know how softly and drove the net into his temple. <laughs> like, I'm thinking how they're telling this story. She gently, softly walked over with a tent peg in her hand and drove it through. I, I don't know how that's described in that way. That's why I think it's really fascinating writing. Until it went down to the ground, that's the tent peg, he was lying fast asleep from weariness and he died. Then as Barak came in in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there was Sisera lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. 
Here's another woman in the story. Don't mess around with jail. Quite a character. Something interesting about her and her husband is they're relatives of Moses. It says this in a verse we didn't actually read. And this is kind of interesting that like years after Moses is gone, years after Joshua is gone, all of a sudden it's like he makes a cameo appearance in the story. He's not there, but he's mentioned and they're relatives of him. And it kind of feels like a Star Wars moment with the Empire and the Resistance movement, right? Like you meet a family, they're officially labeled as part of the Empire or we're friends with the Empire, but then they're like, shh, we're part of the Resistance. We're going to help you out. It's, and I wonder if that's why maybe Moses is, is, is mentioned there, that jail helps in this moment. And in that, like later there's a song that Deborah sings, and it alludes to what Sisera would have done if he wouldn't have been freed and what this army would have done. And the song goes on to sing to say that his mother is saying, oh, where's Sisera? I can't find him. He's probably taken the spoil of women. I'm not going to continue in describing what they would have done to the women. But that's likely the outcome of what would have happened from Sisera's army to the Israelites. But in this moment, with all these pieces coming together, the cycle's broken. The cycle's broken. At least for now, the cycle's broken. Verse 23 says this, So on that day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites, and then the hand of the Israelites bore harder and harder on King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed King Jabin of Canaan, and the cycle's broken. There's a victory here, but it's a messy story. And remember, descriptive, not prescriptive. (laughs) Like, nobody leave today and say, I'm going to go to Canadian Tire and pick up some tent pegs, keep them in my car, so when I'm in a bad conflict, I know how to handle the situation. That's not, that's not the point of this story. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. But I think there's, more, there's definitely more than one lesson we can learn from this story and stories like this in the Old Testament. Overall, Judges teaches us not to follow the trajectory of Israel's decisions. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Israel rejected God's path, God's wisdom, God's promises in those moments. And so one of the overall lessons here is don't follow Israel's trajectory. Within the whole biblical story, one of the beautiful things that's taking place here is that while this is a season in Israel's life, the story's not over. And while Moses and Joshua were kind of like theocratically leading Israel, eventually there would be a monarch that God would use. Even though it wasn't God's ideal plan, it keeps moving. And this part of the story points to the fact that Israel does need a king. Not a human king. A human king is part of the story, but eventually a messianic divine king is the one who really fulfills everything. That's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus isn't tragic literature. Judges is. The story of the kings has moments of tragic literature, but Jesus isn't. So that's one of the big pictures here when we can look at this standing on the other side of the cross in resurrection and look back and say, this was a tragic moment and we can learn from this, but we can see some of the things that it's pointing to, the need for Israel and us and the world ultimately to have a divine king, Jesus. And maybe we'll cycle back to this at the end, but no one can break the cycle of our human brokenness for good but Jesus. God used Deborah and even the other judges to break it momentarily, but our human cycles can never be broken permanently unless Jesus is king. 
But here's two things I want to bring out as we take from this story. Because when we read stories like this in the Old Testament, there's like four or five things we can grab from this and, and the big picture and the small picture. But here's just two things. And one's from Deborah and one's from Barak. The first one is Deborah and how Deborah was present. Ironically, one of our team members today prayed that had a desire that today we would be present to God in our gathering. And here's this sense of being present. Deborah shows us what it means to be faithful, what it means to be present to God and present to his people. See, most of the other judges, they seem to be called to serve in the crisis moment, and most of them were completely walking the other direction, and it's almost like God like, hits them over the head, and they do a total 180, and then they're like, oh, okay, God, you want to use, use me in this? Like Gideon last week is like, I don't know if I want to be used, but if you really want to use me, show me this, show me this, show me this, show me this, and his faith had to grow, right? There's other, you know, Samson is a, a, like not a great character to model your life on, and God somehow uses him to break one of the cycles later on, they're going in a completely opposite direction. The other judges usually need to make a complete U-turn to kind of get into God's purposes. Most of them were participating in Israel's unfaithfulness. And sometimes God in his grace and how he uses what's at disposal at the moment will graciously call us out of our rut and wrong direction and even use us. But Deborah was already serving God faithfully. This is something that's so unique about Deborah. She's already serving God faithfully in a time when Israel was unfaithful, in a time when Israel was tragically lost in their sin and decisions and rejection of God. Deborah was faithfully present to God, fulfilling her calling as a prophet, judge, leader, mother, wife, person. And this was unique in the book of Judges not just because she was a woman, not uh, just because she was better than the rest, not because she was a perfect hero, because she wasn't a perfect hero, but here's the beauty of this. She was already in a place and a posture of being present to God. She was already in a place and a posture of being present to God. She was daily present to God, listening for his voice so she could be present to him and be present to the people of Israel. This was her daily routine. I wrote it on the screen like this. She was practicing God's presence so she can purposely serve God's people. She was practicing God's presence so she could purposely serve God's people. And it was in that moment, in that kind of just daily, ordinary, calling life of hers where she's listening to God's voice, where she's with the people, where, she's, where she wants to serve God, where that, that God taps her on the shoulder. And she senses God's voice. Deborah, you need to move. You need to call Barak. You need to send him out. You need to do this. And it's in that moment. We don't hear God talk to her, but we do read that she communicated what she understood from God, what was God's word in that moment, and calls and sends Barak out in that moment to act and to participate in breaking that vicious cycle that Israel keeps falling into over and over again. And I think sometimes... If we're honest, some of us would rather be a Gideon or a Samson. Some of us would rather be like, I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own life. I want to do what I want. God, if you really want my attention, I want a really big bell. Like, just like, do something, you know? Knock me over. Do something so crazy in my life that then I know that you're going to use me and call me. Some of us, I think, like to lean towards that because it can be easier because day to day we can just, we do whatever we want. 
And we can say, I'm going to live my life. But Lord, you know, I know you're out there. I know you're big. I know you've saved us. I know that. And if you, you know what? If you really want me, do something super big to get my attention. And then I'll jump in to your purposes. See, we're waiting for a big moment to become faithful to God. And I think Deborah teaches us to be faithful in every moment. Be faithful in every moment. To be ready to serve a bigger moment if God taps us with his voice. Deborah was present to God for his purposes, for his people. She wasn't perfect, but she was ready. And that's, I think, what, one of the things that Deborah teaches us that I think is so relevant for us today in our daily walk, in our daily following of Christ, or if you're new, even new here today, what it means to slowly come to know Jesus just on a daily basis. But I think Barak teaches us something else that fits together nicely with Deborah. And it helps us understand how we can respond when we get the tap. Because even Barak got a tap. From, you know, God through Deborah, he got a tap to jump in. And I love, I love what he says, and it's in verse 8. And I think it's so significant. Barak says to Deborah, and, and it, it, at the outset it might look like cowardice, but this is what he says. Hey, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Of course, someone can say like, oh man, here's this man getting stood up by, like stand up, stood up by a woman in a sense, like he's, the man's telling the woman, if you don't come with me, I won't go. But if you come with me, I'll go. And some people, we might see that, oh, is that cowardice? What's he doing? Is he, is he, and I think there's something really important here. If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And Deborah does say, I will go with you. And I think what's interesting here is Moses said the same thing to God years and years earlier. God, if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go ahead. Lord, if your presence doesn't go with me, I don't want to leave this place. I don't want to move forward unless I know that you're with me. If your presence doesn't go with me, I don't want to move ahead. And I think Barak sensed God at work in Deborah. And I think it was a bold move to see God's presence in Deborah, who was a woman as well, and saying, I see God at work in you. Um, I don't want to go if you don't come with me. Because I know God's at work with you. If you come with me, then together we can hear God's voice and respond in the moment. And Deborah says, surely I will come with you. And, and there's even another moment, uh, you know, along the story where Deborah actually, like, where, where things are going on. And Deborah tells Barak, up, oh, go, get ready, it's going to happen. So there was purpose to Deborah being present there. And I think there's something important here. It's almost like, uh, I don't want to read too much into it, but almost like a foreshadowing of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today, post the cross and resurrection, where, God, where Jesus says, I will be with you always. Pray and, and be ready for my Holy Spirit to lead you. And Deborah responds in that way, I will surely always be with you. I'm not saying Deborah's the Holy Spirit, don't get me wrong, but there's almost a foreshadowing here of like, what does it mean for us today in our daily walk to know that God sent the Spirit and that we, what we need daily is to be close and attentive to the work of His Spirit and the voice of His Spirit. And so Barak's desire that Deborah would come with him in a sense is, I want to make sure that every step of the way God is leading, God is walking, God is present. And I mean, how many of us need that in our relationships? 
How many of us need that and want to make sure that we're not just doing our budget and our finances just out of our own smarts and selfish ambitions, but we want the Holy Spirit to be active and leading us? How many of parents parenting their kids are like, Lord, I, God, I have this, you know, this child and this child, or maybe you have two, three, or four, or five, or six. There's a bunch different <laughs> sizes of the family in our community. You're like... God, I can't do this on my own. I, I will long for the work of your Holy Spirit to lead me, to guide me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's so important. Our work, our relationships, our interaction with culture. Our interaction with culture. What does it mean to be present in our culture, in a secular world? We're going to be talking about that this fall, but we need the work of the Holy Spirit for us to serve God's mission. I was, some of you know, our, our family was in Italy for a few weeks in July, and it was like a trip we've planned for seven or eight years, and it was such a wonderful opportunity, but part of my heartbeat wherever I go anywhere is always to kind of keep my ear to the ground, like, what's happening? What are, what are local people, like, what's happening in the culture, in the city, in the environment, in the economy? And I was, I got, some of my family members are still part of a, a church, churches out in southern Calabria, and I was, it just broke my heart to hear some of the struggles going on and some of the um, decrease even in some of these ch churches in smaller villages and sometimes some of the lack of unity among pastors and talking to each other. And I was listening and, and one morning I had just the privilege of staying at her place and she was on the sixth floor of a condo building and I could see, I could see the water from one side, the sea from one side and I could see the mountain in front of me, a little town called Gasparino where my parents grew up and my great-grandfather, when he, he became a Christian in America, came and brought the gospel to that little town and founded this church. And the struggles that they walk through today, 80, uh, 90 years later, maybe 100 years later, and as I was looking out to that, to the mountain region and all the conversation I had over the last few days of the church and culture and the struggles and this and that, I just like felt God just lift up in me the Lord's prayer. Lord, may your will be done. May your kingdom come here, like in this place. Would you unite Christians and pastors and leaders? And I think it was in that moment that that's the moments where the Holy Spirit reminds you. And I felt, I got to tell my cousin this. And ironically, that day we went to a mall and we bump into a local pastor that she knows and I had seven minutes with this guy. And I don't know why. I said, you know, I got to tell you what I felt this morning on the balcony looking at this town. And it was just a moment of like, Lord, what are you doing here? The Holy Spirit wants to lead us daily. Not just for the church, obviously, but in our daily lives. This fall, is, as we enter our fall season with even the uncertainties of our world and some of the stuff in our city that we were reminded of in prayer this morning. We want to launch Alpha. We want to restart small groups. We want to make space for growth. We want to discern. And we're saying, Lord, lead us. If your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to move forward. Lead us. And the beauty, the beauty is he's already promised to be with us. Isn't that true? He's already promised it. We don't have to beg God to be with us. He's already promised, I will be with you always. I will be with you always. This week, I was walking through Point Claire Village. I'm going to ask Alex to come up. We're going to close in a moment. I was walking through Point Claire Village, and, and I, was, I, was, uh, I decided to do a prayer walk in the village. And I, I wasn't thinking of what to pray, or I just knew I wanted to be present for an hour or so. 
And as I parked the car and walked across the street, just right from Wild Willies, and I started walking down the road, down to the water, immediately, like, just this desire in me came to, like, this desire for a hunger for God. Not just a hunger for God, because, but it was more of a hunger for a hunger for God. You know what I'm saying? And it was in that moment, I was like, that just set me, set the tone for what I felt I needed to be praying for over the next 30 or 40 or 50 minutes. God, would you grow a hunger for a hunger for you in our hearts and help us see who around us is hungering for you so we can help connect them to you by your grace, through the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit, not our, our efforts, but God, we want to participate. And it was this, just this quiet reminder, I need to hunger for God's spirit and God's presence. And along the way, I prayed for some of us in this room that came to mind for some of our initiatives this fall for our city. I'm going to start praying for Lachine this week. I didn't plan to feel that way, but I did plan to be present. Like I made a decision two days earlier. I want to go to, I'm going to start my morning off there. So being present somehow helped me make space for God's presence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Being present helped me make space for God's presence. And this is kind of where I just want to lean in today and bring these two ideas together as we read from this story. And basically this, may these moments in Deborah and Barak's story encourage us. One, to be present, faithfully present before God and the world around us. Don't get overly spiritual and say, I'm just going to be present with the Lord. But God... I think as we're present with him, he wants us to open our eyes and be present with the world around us. I think, and don't look for big things. Don't look for the, don't listen for the big bell, you know, or some crazy moment. Just faithfully being present with the Lord and present with the world around us and trust that in that moment, if God will, will work in us and God will use us, and yes, if God wants to tap us to jump into his purposes in a greater way, he'll do it but as we're present to him. And then, as Barak showed us, to, be, to practice his presence, to long for nothing less than God's very spirit leading us and empowering us each day. Amen? That together, these two um, ideas would you know, be implemented into our day. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a formula. But we're called just to be faithfully present to him and then to be open to his presence and long for him to lead us. Amen? And invite us to pray for a moment. And some of you here today maybe are here for the first time. I know there are some here for the first time. Some have just joined us this summer. And some are wondering, like, wow, I mean, you don't even know Jesus. And you don't, you're new to faith or you're just exploring. And you're wondering, like, well, how do I, how do I be present like that? And how do, I, how do I, like, even know that God's Spirit is working in me? And you know what? The, the, first, the first step the first step is trusting in Christ. And here's the beauty. that king of the, the book of Judges says one day a true judge, a true king, a divine king will come. And the cycle that you feel you're in over and over again, yes, God can use moments to break us out of that cycle, but Christ ultimately breaks the cycle. And putting your trust in him, following him, opens you up to be present to his spirit and to be present to the people around us in ways that you, you, don't, you don't realize yet. So my invitation to you, you know, we read stories like this. It's tragic literature, cycle over and over again. 
And we hear the stories in our city, in our world, cycle over and over again. And we pray for those cycles to be broken. We know at times they're momentary. But I, I want to invite you to invite Christ, the ultimate cycle breaker, into your life. Let's just take a moment and have a moment of, of, in, of maybe expressing our desire to trust Him. And maybe for some of us making this decision today or stepping into that direction today, you, you need to do like Israel in part of their, one of, the, one of the spots in their cycle where they cried out to God, where they recognize their sin and their rejection of Him and their reliance on their own wisdom. That cry represents a cry of repentance in our own hearts and a cry of surrender for Jesus to lead us. He longs to save us and rescue us and to be king of our lives. Even in this moment, if you want to express the first steps of that today, just do it in your own words, in your own voice, even quietly. Just inviting Jesus to lead you, inviting Jesus to be king of your life. God, we pray that for all of us here today. Whether we're just starting to follow you or we've been following you for years, we pray that for our church. We acknowledge Jesus as our King. Yes, our Savior, but ultimately our King. And we long to trust Him fully. And God, I pray for each of us here who in the middle of this story, maybe have been awakened, reminded of our need to be faithfully present to you daily, trusting that in these ordinary moments you're at work and that when you wish and when you desire for us to do something different or that you just would tap us and we would recognize your voice because we are discerning your voice daily. And God, for some of us that have been awakened today, Reminded, oh God, that we long for your presence to go before us. Give us a hunger to hunger for you, Lord, we pray. And thank you, thank you that as much as tragic literature teaches us something, we also see that it is points to the ultimate King and Lord um, where his leadership and his rule and reign does not end in tragedy. Thank you for that, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com 
forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.